0: my glorious imperfect self has the right right now to take up space to speak up in meetings to not give a fuck if people don't like me <laughs> all of, like I have all those rights right now they don't have to be granted to me by anyone else and right. I don't have to be perfect to get them they're inherent to me
1: welcome to the reboot podcast we are so glad you're here
2: So Reboot Women is a a once-a-month collaborative conversation with Reboot's coaches who identify as women on the realities of women and work and life. This one is for the wombs. We'll go broad and deep on a bosom full of topics that can weigh on a woman's heart, and we'll find solidarity as we weave insight from a range of well-hewn threads of wisdom, our own experience as women in the workplace, as coaches, as mothers, as healers. My colleagues and I aim to lift up the conversation, be savvy and soulful, and include and reclaim all the parts of us in the process. The wounded parts, the fed up parts, the struggle is real parts, the desire parts, the wild parts, and the parts that are becoming. We want to support the revolution in the mind, heart, gut, womb. I say that because I believe women have four brain centers that guide us that in a revolution serves us all. All right, let's introduce ourselves. My name is Ali Schultz. I am the co-founder of Reboot. I am with my esteemed colleague, Heather Jesse. Hi, everybody. This conversation really spun out of a long-held conversation that I felt we've needed to do at Reboot. And Heather prompted me by saying she really wanted to dive in more with the women entrepreneurs. And I said, well, let's, let's do this. And these are the
0: conversations that you and I have about being a woman (laughs) and, and the journey that women face. And so we look at this as sort of a continuation of that conversation with more friends listening.
2: Yes. So this will be a series of podcast conversations that we'll, we'll do with more of our colleagues in our, coaches who identify as women here at Reboot. So it'll be a more full party as we continue onward. But we kind of wanted to set the stage here and maybe talk about why this felt so important. While this was still an ideation, although it went from idea to something fairly fast, I surveyed all of our, our coaches and I said, what do you hear from your clients that are women? And as we collected that, I it was very eye opening in terms of what, what was surfacing and like some part of me got like would groan and some part of me would be sad and some part of me would get like angry depending on what the issue was just because it was like oh my god this stuff actually happens over and over over and over over. not only is the struggle real but like these situations are are totally real
0: But there's also a shared experience of everyone feeling as though they're alone in it yes absolutely
2: and there's one guiding quote that I will offer us as we begin our conversation, and it's by Muriel Rukeiser. What would happen if one woman told the truth about her life? The world would split open. Yeah. So, one of the first bullet points I have here is um, that women are critiqued on their communication, specifically their tone. And their presentation, etc., instead of being critiqued on like the content and the data and the business plan, for example, of their contribution. This is like in meetings, board meetings, um, pitching, like for fundraising.
0: What's really painful about this for me is that that you know, I mean, we're coaches. We we speak to lots of leaders. I mean, many, many, most, if not all. Leaders have imposter syndrome If this fear that they're going to be exposed as fraudulent or that they don't know what they're doing. And for white men, this is mostly a process of just coming to terms with the fact that this is about facing their own demons and fears that like becoming clear that what they fear is happening is not actually what's happening. But for women and people of color, there's, there's not only imposter syndrome, that's one layer, but also there's this whole layer of stuff that's happening that's not in your head. <laughs> it's real. And so you are being judged on tone, presentation, style points instead of the substance of your work. And so there's this double layer of stuff. And then for women of color, another layer of stuff. To unpack, and um, it can—I think it can feel like a funhouse mirror, a lot or multiple fr- funhouse mirrors that we're sort of living in every day at work. Just that alone is daunting. Absolutely. I mean, this is part of why we need other women around us who who have a shared experience, and to and and not just that, but to be able to talk about our stories and to talk about what we experience, because you know we are at times made to feel as though we have to question our sanity because we experience something so strongly and we're told that that's not actually real. And so often, I, I think that one thing that's so important about this is actually having time to be connected to your own truth, to make space for your own truth, because the world is very loud and it will tell you that your reality is not actually true. And that's why it's so important to make that space every day for yourself. I think we're talking about imposter syndrome and gaslighting. I mean, it really imposter syndrome just shows up in such a uh, a variety of ways. But usually, it just shows up like a very, very credible voice telling that you that you can't do something for some reason. There's always a reason. And you know, I, I think that one of the ways that this shows up is uh, women often feel like they need many certifications before they can do whatever. They often feel underqualified. And, and how this shows up is that we can hang out on the sidelines, just waiting until we're qualified enough. And sometimes that day never comes. And while we're hanging out waiting, we're not taking enough risks. We're not talking in meetings. We're not touting our successes. We're not asking for that juicy role. I want to share a personal story about this. A couple of days ago, I got really in my own head about this podcast, thinking, you know, who am I to think I have authority to speak about women's lives? And like, in my experience, my imposter syndrome always shows up with this sentences that begin like, who are you to think or who am I to think? (laughs) And, uh, you know, sounds very credible. Um, and I was talking about this with my husband who, who, you know, said, well, why would you feel that way? You owned a feminist bookstore. You served as a coach and therapist to scores of women over the years. Uh, You're an early female executive, the first mother with a baby at Etsy, and you, you know, worked with the Etsy seller community. Millions of women you talk to every day for years, right? Mm I'm a mother with two daughters. But, you know, if I just had a PhD in women's studies, (laughs) then I could do this thing. So, you know, I've learned over the years to unspool myself from uh, this thinking and and generally like over time, I can unpack it, but there's still a process. It still comes up. And it's been such a, just a huge gift in my life to be a therapist and coach and get to understand that this is such a universal experience for so many incredible women that I know. For me, it's been incredibly healing to see that in others as well. But if you were to ask me who has the right to speak with authority about women's lives, I'd say any woman, I would totally mean it, but different standards when it comes to myself, right?
2: You know? <laughs> like you are you are more than qualified, and yet here here is that persistent voice that constantly tells us. We're all more than
0: qualified and we see it in others, as it can be harder to recognize in ourselves. I think another thing that comes up a lot is that women tend to worry more about likability. And, you know, we worry about being a bitch and we worry about leadership, how to lead effectively without being aggressive. And again, this is very real. There is a much smaller range of acceptable emotion tolerated in women in the workplace. And, you know, as a client told me, I have to choose between making myself small so that I don't piss off my peers or do my best work and everyone hates me. That's a really shitty set of choices. Yeah, I mean, this also tracks to the fact that women are, are often given raises or promotions based on past accomplishments, while men are often given raises or promotions based on potential, right?
2: Wow. The struggle is real.
0: It's real. <laughs> this, this list is bumming me out, Alex. I know. Oh. <laughs> Can we also talk about motherhood a little bit? Yes, after? let's talk about motherhood. You know, I mean, there's, there's a lot here. Um, you know, I think Women worry about being taken seriously if they want to start a family and a company. And and having a family just brings up all sorts of things. There's mom guilt, torn between work and family. Uh, You know, I've I've often said, often failing at at least one of my jobs, Um, sometimes both. Um, You know, some women consider freezing their eggs while they're on a startup salary because they want to have options. They're not sure what those options are going to look like for them or whether there will be a place for them to be a mother. There's a huge shift in identity when one becomes a mother. uh, And, you know, what does that mean for a woman at work identity? I mean, there's so much I would love to say about this in particular. I mean, I will say this, a conversation that I have with a lot of friends and clients is is about something that happens when you have a baby. It just, you know, it breaks you wide open, (laughs) sometimes literally. Uh, But your heart is so open and vulnerable. And, you know, at least in my experience, this act of context shifting um, between that vulnerability and then how one has to show up and be strong at work is just exhausting and overwhelming. And then there's also just the (laughs) mountain of minutiae to manage in addition to the actual caregiving of children on top of one's workload. I mean, I I can't talk about this topic too much. I get like anger on the inside out and, you know, get really upset. But But it's, it's just, it's, it can all be really overwhelming.
2: Yeah. I don't know how moms do it. I am. I'm grateful for all of them. And I like, look at, at what is actually involved and I'm like, Oh my God, how, how do you stay upright? How do you stay sane? How do you like eat lunch? (laughs) Well,
0: you know, when I, when I listening to all of this, I mean, it's mothers, but it's, it's all women. And I, I think (laughs) this can all sound really awful, but also we're incredibly strong. I mean, that's like, look at all this and we just do it. We just show up and we do it. Um, Yeah.
2: Yeah. We just show up and
0: we do the thing. We show up and we do the thing. I mean, I think this is something you and I've talked about a lot that the hero's journey for men can often feel uh, you know the Jack Kerouac on the road, discover yourself. And for women, it can just feel like moving back some minutiae for a little bit to claim a little bit of space for yourself, for something to emerge. Yeah, it's such a it can feel like such a different experience of attempting to make space for oneself.
2: Yes, I think part of making space for ourselves, it, as part of our heroines' journeys, I think part of that is. Really parsing through our own psyche and unloading all of the internalized stuff that we've taken on to really find at our core and at our ground, really like Mm -hmm. that strength that is, that's going to get us through anything that is us. And that is our kind of just this like core central pillar of just who we are and our ability to take up space and the fierceness of what we know and moving on. Absolutely and I, I think that we are in the in,
0: definitely in the business of believing people can change and seeing people change and grow through incredible obstacles. and I do think to your point it, it begins with knowing yourself and learning yourself because you know while we all share, a collective experience of being a woman in the world. We all have an individual experience of that. We all carry different wounds and all this collective bullshit we have to deal with touches different wounds in each of us. We we react in different ways when these wounds are touched. Some of us lash out, some of us close off and recede. And, you know, we've all developed different coping strategies to protect us and while some of these coping strategies helped us up to now, which of course is awesome, but they're, they're not serving us anymore and they're actively working against us often. And, and so this, to me, this work is really about deeply understanding ourselves and unpacking our individual mythologies
2: mm-hmm. and
0: understanding what, what is actually our story versus the story that we've been given about ourselves from everyone else or from the world.
2: We and have- falling
0: in love with that story, really.
2: Um, I'm thinking of some great books.
0: And of course we have one book that's been our inspiration book for this conversation.
2: Oh yeah. The little girl who gives zero fucks. I cry every time I read it. Same. And it belongs on the bookshelf of every woman of any age, actually.
0: Every woman. And I love that it's written. It's written like a children's book for grown up women, yes. you know, speaking to the little girl self. Um, it, it It touched me so deeply. Do you want to share a bit about this story? Because I think I think it could be so meaningful to lots of people listening.
2: Oh yeah, Elodie Rose, our hero, our hero, oh. yes, <laughs> the heroine of the book. She kind of goes through her day, right, of like little Elodie Rose, like going to school and coming home and experiencing, you know, like her this fullness of her inner life and her imagination and her dreams and her hopes and her inner fire and her just like vivaciousness and joy for life. And then she gets on the bus, she encounters like, you know, whatever cattiness is happening on the bus. And then she's like, what, why am I so like emotionally distraught by like this, this stuff that's going on. And then things will happen even at school and she'll be equally distraught. And she'll kind of come home at the end of the day and be like, why why do I feel a little wrecked right, right now? But effectively, uh, she wakes up in the morning with a full basket of fucks, and, um, Fox are really like just the currency of an alive life. Like this mm-hmm. is your energy. This is what your focus and attention goes to.
0: And they're fed by her dream world at night. Right. Yeah. All these magical dreams she has of all the things she can do.
2: Right. And, uh, When we waste or give away those valuable parts of ourselves, using the metaphor of giving away fucks, right? Out of Mm -hmm. our basket of fucks, the way that this book goes into it. Eventually, at the end of the day, we're like, where where did all my energy go? This book is like this uh, rhyming testament to staying true to yourself and really not giving a rat's ass about anybody else's feelings and what your teacher has to say and not in a disrespectful sort of way, but in a way that is like 100% respectful of who you are and the boundaries required for this require something that is just airtight. You know, what's yours, you know, what's not yours. You know what you want to do. You know what you don't want to do. And you ride that line Hmm. consistently.
0: One thing I really like about this book, too, is that she, I forget exactly where it was, but something to the effect of, like, I, the one the one critique I was having as we went along was, I was like, but there are some things I should be giving a fuck about. And she gets to that, right? She gets to that part, like, save your fucks for the people and the things that really need it. So the climate crisis deserves my fucks. My neighbor who doesn't like the shrubs that I planted doesn't deserve my fucks. Um, <laughs>
2: right? Right. <laughs>
0: Right. I mean, hypothetically, (laughs) right. And, and, um, yeah. And, and like you, I, I weep every time I read it. What is it that touches you so much about this book?
2: I really start crying. Um, as she starts venturing through, uh, the history of women who have been, Um, um, belittled, their voices have not been heard. They have literally been burnt at the stake the ones who have known so fiercely who they are and the ones who have just given a fuck for brilliant reasons.
0: Uh, The first time I, the first time I read it, I wrote you and said, I'm weeping because I'm thinking about all the fucks I've given to people who don't deserve them. Yeah. Um, but, But the part that was so touching to me was the first morning after she gets this realization, she doesn't have to give them away and she goes to share with her friends and they say, they, they basically shame her. They tell her it's not true. It's not real. And then they, they uh, belittle her about petty things, about her appearance. And, and it's their way of sort of silencing her and making her stick to the social code. And she goes, I love the part where she, she, she has this rejection. And then she says, I can, sh- I can give away my fucks over this or I don't have to. And she goes and sits in the back of the bus and stares outside and dreams of being a CEO and an astronaut. <laughs> and she keeps it in her basket.
2: <laughs> the most <laughs> beautiful book. <laughs> yeah. 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 Amy Charlotte Keane writes, my dears, some people were born to be bad. They'll fight to extinguish the fire you had in a bucket of crabs. When one tries to cr- climb out the rest, pull their legs back with no shred of doubt, their collective ambition to remain in a cave. Because crabs don't fancy their friends being brave. I know, which um, really brings up this image of crabs in a bucket, too. So crabs in a bucket is what happens when a bunch of women get together and they pull each other down. Like, like are we insecure? Do we not trust each other? Um, Do we not trust ourselves? Like, are we just, have we somehow been, like, internalized or indoctrinated to, like, just not find community in each other. I don't know what it is, but it, um, it, it feels like a, f- like this, uh, everyone's a little threatened by mm-hmm. everyone else and then things can get weird or passive aggressive.
0: And, um, it's really awful to be around in general. And in workplaces it also just feel, it can feel like scarcity. that there's, oh. There are only so many slots and only, you know, only one crab gets in and we're not going to let it be that person. I'm reading this incredible book called How Women Rise, um, Sally Hegelson, and um, you know one of the things she talks about is that women are are actually more likely to leave jobs that don't. It's not just about the promotion. It's not just about the money. Those those are those are important, but but also because they're they are more about recognition. Right, they're about being recognized for what you're doing. But for women, it's it's equally important to have a place where you enjoy your day to day. You like the work, you like the people, you don't feel like you're in the bucket of crabs, right? It it's it's ve- it can be much harder to for women to compartmentalize around when you're in a crab bucket all day. Much can be harder for women than men.
2: Our friend and colleague told me about Gail Evans. Mm-hmm who's the author of She Wins, You Win. Gail says that every time a woman succeeds in business, every other woman's chance of succeeding in business increases. And every time a woman fails in business, every other woman's chance of failure increases. It's, it's related to this crabs in bucket thing. It's like if we're pulling each other down, we're not helping the collective. Right. Uh, but imagine a different
0: world, right? Well, I mean, a crap bucket, sort of a, the image is just a lot of people stuck in one small place together.
2: Mm-hmm. A lot
0: of crap stuck in one small place together, right? So the opposite is something that feels more expansive, as if there are a lot more choices. What do we feel is the path out of this? I think we have some theories, right?
2: Yeah. We believe that there's a way out. We believe in new possibilities. We do. Yeah. Um, but we also know that, uh, the inequities that we face are real, um, Mm -hmm. but it's how we internalize those situations and the large, the much larger message around who we are supposed to be that determines what we make of ourselves and the ripples that we make in the world. So that inner revolution, um, starts deep within, I would say it probably starts with knowing your worth and healing the wounds that make you believe you're not enough. Hmm yeah I mean,
0: we all share an experience. I mean, we're all women in the world, and there's stuff that happens to all of us, but we also have different wounds. This touches different wounds in each of us, and you know we react in different ways when these wounds are touched. We react to our society in different ways, and it's a very individual process, and some people have formed the reaction of closing themselves off some are reactive you know we all have different ways of processing this stuff that we live in right and so we believe that the beginning of the way out is through self-knowledge and understanding your wounds and and this is another version of not having to be complete like have the phd in women's studies before you have the right to speak you don't have to wait until the wounds are healed to start moving forward, right? And so this, this is really about starting from a place of deep understanding of ourselves, understanding, and to, to your point, what's really ours, what's really our voice, and what's the voice that we've been told is reality that is not ours, no thank you, right? be yeah. able to separate those two things
2: mm-hmm.
0: and and to be able to, you know, really begin to approach ourselves with with benevolence
2: yeah and and to be able to take up space really mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and own our right to be here that one's huge it really shows up um when I do sessions with clients and the horses mm. um because the horses just they innately like they know their worth right and as a herd member if you're not taking up space, you're just going to be run over. Can you talk about
0: the, the horse and what the horse may feel as taking up space? Like, how does that show up to a horse?
2: Um, so for a horse as a prey animal, meaning that like the horse could become someone's lunch out in the wild, um, just by the nature of things, they have their body and that is effectively all they have, and their body and how they're oriented in space, and their kind of like perceptual sense of who they are is literally a bubble. But but horses operate through space like their whole bubble is really like who they are. Horses really don't lose that sense of self um, in the sense that they don't. They don't really lose that foundation of who they are because they're so Mm -hmm. intimately connected to it. And it's, it's from a survival point of view like that part of their neurology is, has evolved to help them survive through epochs and millennia for 55 million years.
0: And they have all that sensitivity and intuition without a film strip running that, that tells them, hey, don't listen to that intuition. Hey, don't step away from that person. They just do it.
2: Right, right, right. See, humans have this prefrontal cortex that gets in the way. We kind of get snagged by thinking, oh, does this person like me?
0: It touches a lot of things that we're, at, we're getting at here around intuition and likability and a number of things that we feel are part of the path out the most confident woman I've ever met. It's incredible woman I used to work with. I knew her and I thought, God, I want to know what her mother did to mm-hmm. help her be so confident because I want to raise my daughters to be this way. So I, I asked her and she said, you know, the most, I said, what did your mother do? How did you become so confident? She said, well, first of all, my mother taught me that I don't need to worry about people liking me. And mm-hmm. when I'd come home from school and I'd say, oh, so-and-so wasn't nice to me today. She'd say, well, who says everybody has to like you? <laughs> and I thought, what a gift this woman's mother gave to her. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, how many of us are taught instead that when someone doesn't like us or, or when someone rejects us, that we need to go fix it, that we must have done something wrong, that it must be us. Mm-hmm. Not simply that, you know, some people aren't going to like us and it's okay. It's not an imperative. It doesn't define anything about who we are. That person just doesn't like us. Okay. Seems to me that so much of what we're talking about is actually perfection. Perfection grants us permission. So once we're healed, once we're brave, once we've like decided that we have the right to take up space or ask for permission, that's when we get to do all of this. And and until then we're paying some sort of penance. And instead we just decide, my glorious imperfect self has the right right now to take up space, to speak up in meetings, to not give a fuck if people don't like me. <laughs> all of, like I have all those rights right now. They don't have to be granted to me by anyone else. And I right. don't have
2: to be perfect to get them. They're inherent to me. I've had this conversation with so many people in the past two weeks. Mm. One of which was, one of my doctors and one was a client and they both said something similar like, man, I was so knocked off course by this one moment for whatever, whatever the situation was for each of them. Like they were just emotionally like triggered for lack of a better word. And they just, they worked with it with, for themselves. Right. They stayed with themselves. They, they inquired within, they found space. And gave themselves space, right, to navigate their, what was happening for them, right, before they reacted. And they, they gave themselves that space to, like, choose, well, how do I want to be right now? How do I want to respond to this? You don't become bulletproof. Like, that sense of perfection isn't, like, this armor where, like, all of a sudden, like, life shits on you and, like, it just washes off. But, like, there's no, there is no place that you reach where it's, like, I am impervious, to right. the experience of my humanity.
0: <laughs> right. But yes. the cycle can get a lot faster where the, the thing happens, you spin out and you recognize and name it.
1: And mm-hmm. you have,
0: you, there's some pattern recognition about how to, how to unwind from this thing. Right. Mm-hmm. And that gets faster and faster. And sometimes it's immediate <laughs> over time. Sometimes it's not. And, and also we talk about this as though it's it's linear, but you know, when you run a company and you're in this incredibly stressful, compressed environment, when you have to grow so much so quickly and you're constantly having to use new muscles, we're so vulnerable to defaulting back to things that, that we may have learned and forgotten. I think too, we're talking, we're talking. So, you know, when we talk about voice paying attention, you know listening we're really talking about making space for yourself to be in discourse with your inner voice constantly mm-hmm. right to be really tuned into that, and it's definitely hard when you're in a busy company it's definitely hard when you're a mother it's just hard to be in the world and be so connected to your intuition that that it becomes louder and more powerful
2: mm-hmm. than
0: all these other voices that are telling you who you should be or what the truth is.
2: Mm -hmm. We're constantly having um, to protect that magic, right? The magic that we know and and the voice that does come through so strongly through our heart channel.
0: I, I think we're sort of getting at boundaries. We're talking about boundaries. It's really hard to have boundaries when you're not connected to what your needs are and this is why it comes so much back to that time spent in discourse from the self being connected to your horse body yeah. being able to always be connected to that. I mean one of the first exercises I do as a coach with a lot of women that I work with is have them create a resentment list and I have people track the things that they resent and when when I ask women, like, can you just identify what resentment feels like in the body? It's very easy to, to grab that, right? Because resentment to me is not, not just the feeling of resentment takes up space, but resentment is also a sign that we have some sort of expectations or boundaries that are being trespassed. It's something we've picked up that we actually don't want. And so I, uh, I get some long lists through the you know? <laughs>
2: I can, I'm just, I'm composing mine right
0: now. <laughs> I and I often tell people like, you're, you're probably going to feel nauseated as you make this list, right? And I get some reactions of horror when I assign this to people. But you know, it, it, it's actually so incredible when people start going through their days and saying, wow, look at all these things that are taking up so much space. When we go back to this idea of only having a certain amount of prana or life force or willpower every day, And giving away all this to other people, picking up the things that are left behind, picking up the things that no one else will pick up, takes up a lot
2: of space. Yeah, even just the resentments in daily life.
0: Absolutely. It's
2: like they cling to us like barnacles. Absolutely. And,
0: you know, if I go back to the, the little girl who gave zero fucks. You know, there was there's such a theme in that book about hanging on to the sanctity of the space to dream. Going to the back of the bus and looking out and letting herself dream instead of caring about what's happening. You know, allow holding on to her dreams every night, deciding she's gonna keep them for herself all day. There's just such a theme of taking up space and saying, no, this is mine. Just protecting that space with vigilance
2: I resonate with that so much yeah because I was the girl in the back of the bus
0: mm, me too
2: like I still feel that way mm. um, tell me about that every every night still like I go to bed and it's like I steeped in like the most burning desire I have for like the thing that I want to manifest in this lifetime, Mm -hmm. whether it's, um, a farm or, you know, for a while it was reboot and, uh, that fire, that dream fire does not die. And it's so crystal clear. And when it's given space Mm -hmm. stays crystal clear, it's such a gift to be so connected to it. And I operate in the world with such a clear knowing of what I want like my priorities are really clear. I know exactly where I want my energy to go, mm-hmm. and I get flack for that all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, growing up, it was, "Geez, Ally, you're so selfish," and I'm mm-hmm. like, "Really? How is this selfish? This is like the most radical form of self-care." Of course, I didn't have that language then, but I was I would hear that word, and I would just be like, "Why did somebody just smack me on the nose for just mm-hmm. being like so fully me?" I'm grateful, grateful mm-hmm. for whatever practice I've just been been doing by holding on to my dreams uh for so long
0: I mean my experience of this is that when I was younger it was so easy to be connected to that dream for me Mm -hmm. that it felt so vivid and so real and I had I feel like I had more time and space to really, I love that word steep, steep in it like tea, you know, that just to luxuriate in it. As I've gotten older and I think with motherhood, it it becomes harder to find time to steep in it. Mm -hmm. But when I do, it's always there. It's Mm -hmm. just always there. It's so close. And I, you know, I, I, my approach with clients has always been, you know, okay, first sometimes we just have to make empty space, Mm -hmm. right? We have to clear out, whatever you're doing that you resent, we have to like get help for you. We have to do whatever we can to make some space because when you make space, it's all there. Mm -hmm. All those dreams, they never go away. They're always there. And it really is just a matter of just making empty space to commune with them. Mm -hmm. And it's so beautiful because there are moments where I'm like, do I trust this process? Do I trust that if we really clear the space, it's there, but it always is. I mean, it really always is. I love that. I do too. And, you know, I, I remember, you know, reading years ago that how when we're young, we get to live in the shadow world. We get to like fully experience a range of what just being human and in our living in our wildness. And then we could become, you know, I, re- I remember it so distinctly because we said, when we become about eight, we have to start conforming. We have to start changing. We have to start shifting. There's this whole, we're given like a certain amount of leniency when we're young to be children. And then we're thrust into the world. And, um, this is really tender for me because I I have an eight year old daughter and she's hit that age and I'm watching it happen. I'm watching, you know, the, the tension between the wildness and the girl who dreams with also suddenly being tuned into what other people are thinking about her.
2: I just, um, we keep piles of quotes around at the reading Mm -hmm. office and, uh, I ran across one this week from Brene, the beloved Brene Brown. And it was, uh, if you trade your authenticity for safety, you may experience the following. Anxiety, depression, eating disorders, addiction, rage, flame, resentment, and inexplicable grief. Hmm.
0: I don't know much about Gestalt psychology, but I see a Gestalt therapist. And one thing she talks about a lot is that um, in the theory, the life layer is at the very center. That's where we're really fully integrated human living, fully in our aliveness. But to get to that, we have to go through the role layer and the death layer. Mm. We have to allow all of our, you know, these preconceived notions of who we have to be in the world die. And and so many, to get to Brene's quote, you know, so much of what we see as <laughs> malfunctioning coping strategies are about avoiding that death layer.
2: Mm. Yeah yeah. It, it's a, uh, and it just feels like it's death of like, it's death of the ego, right? It's death of, um, those things that kind of hold us hostage a little bit. Yeah. And really our true self.
0: The ego is such an interesting one. You know, I, I, uh, had a Zen teacher in my twenties who, um, I had a real reaction to the ego stuff. <laughs> you know, when I talked to him and said, I have a real problem with this because I don't even feel like I have an ego yet. I still can't say no. I can't, I still, you know, I'm still struggling for space. And he said, your lesson at any moment is to learn that which is difficult for you. Mm. If you have trouble saying no you're <laughs> and extending to others, your job is to learn how to extend. If you can't say no, you have to learn to say no so that you can actually choose to say yes. Mm. Right? It had a profound impact on me. And so I always look at it as like the work that we're doing in every moment or in each phase of our life is a little different. Mm -hmm. At times we're building ego, we're building a strong back. At other times we're breaking that down a little bit. We're, we're, we're letting go, we're changing. And so this, 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 is this, this work is a constant discourse to figure out, you know, how we stay in dialogue with our true self and like looking what we're doing and how that's either helping or hurting or enabling the best dream of ourselves. Let's just circle back to tall poppy syndrome. Yeah. I mean, the tall poppy syndrome is this idea, is this image of a, of a field of flowers with one poppy that might stand above the rest and, uh, gets its head chopped off. So it's the same height as the others. And it's really describes aspects of a culture where people, of high status or resented attack cut down, struck, strung up and criticized when they've been classified as superior to their peers. And I, and I'm sure that this is, um, an image that might resonate for a lot of women. And the thing about the poppy is the poppy usually ends up feeling like something's wrong with her. Mm -hmm. Mm, Not that she was doing such a great job that she was punished, but actually that, that, uh, that she did something to cause the beheading. Mm.
2: It takes so much bravery just to stand into who we are.
0: It does. It does. And, and sometimes we're punished for it. But, you know, the truth is, you know, there are often repercussions for taking risks or putting yourself out there. I mean, sometimes the experience is people are like, I did this thing that really scared me and it was all fine, right? But there's a feeling like I did it and it actually wasn't that scary. And then there are other times that people do this and put themselves out there and they're actually, you know, the tall poppy syndrome.
2: Right. Yes. Yes. And circling back to even taking up space and uh, being okay with being you fully. Yeah. And yep. Yep. being a-okay with being all of that much is really such a potent
0: thing. Absolutely. You know, I used the example earlier of a client who said, you know, I either have to choose between, you know, being small, making everybody okay, being my best self, making everybody, everybody hating me essentially. And I said, okay, well, which of these would you rather, if you're going to lose either way, which one would you rather do? Right. Yeah. Um, but you know, as Glennon Doyle says, we love her. Um, I know we both love her. She says, you'll be too much for some people. These are not your people.
2: These are not your people. Yeah. It's so reassuring.
0: It is because they're, they may not be, but other people are. It sounds so simple, but It is a matter of finding your people who, who don't, the women, the other people who don't want to be in the crab bucket. Yes. Who actually want to be birds on a wire flying free sitting next to the other birds. Yeah. If they choose. Mm
2: Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Well, this has been fantastic. Okay. This is really fun. Good. No matter
0: what comes out of this, it's really fun. All right. Okay.
2: (laughs) Thank you. Hugs. Talk All right. You I love you. Have a great I day. Love you. Bye-bye. Bye. There is a poem by Yvonne Whitney called the too much woman that I think is worth reading right now. I'll use it as an invocation for not only this series of conversations that we'll have here at reboot or women. Um, but for you right now, as you venture onward into your days, into your weeks and, uh, all the ripples that you will create that flow through that the too much woman by evian whitney there she is the too much woman the one who loves too hard feels too deeply asks too often desires too much there she is taking up too much space with her laughter her curves her honesty her sexuality Her presence is as tall as a tree, as wide as a mountain. Her energy occupies every crevice of the room. Too much space she takes. There she is, causing a ruckus with her persistent wanting, too much wanting. She desires a lot, wants everything, too much happiness, too much alone time, too much pleasure. She'll go through brimstone, Murky river and hellfire to get it. She'll risk all to quell the longings of her heart and body. This makes her dangerous. She is dangerous. And there she goes, that too much woman, making people think too much, feel too much, swoon too much. She with her authentic prose and self-assuredness in the way she carries herself. She with her belly laughs and her insatiable appetite and her proneness to fiery passion, all eyes on her thinking she's hot shit. Oh, that too much woman, too loud, too vibrant, too honest, too emotional, too smart, too intense, too pretty, too difficult, too sensitive, too wild, too intimidating, too successful, too fat, too strong, too political, too joyous, too needy, too much. She should simmer down a bit, be taken down a couple of notches. Someone should put her back in a more respectable place. Someone should tell her, here I am, the too much woman, with my too tender heart and my too much emotions, a hedonist, feminist, pleasure seeker, empath. I want a lot, justice, sincerity, spaciousness, ease, intimacy, Actualization, respect, to be seen, to be understood, your undivided attention, and all of your promises to be kept. I've been called high maintenance because I want what I want and intimidating because of the space I occupy. I've been called selfish because I am self loving. I've been called a witch because I know how to heal myself. And still, I rise. Still, I want to feel and ask and risk and take up space. I must. Us too much women have been facing extermination for centuries. We are so afraid of her, terrified of her big presence, of the way she commands respect and wields the truth of her feelings. We've been trying to stifle the too much woman for eons, in our sisters, in our wives, in our daughters, and even now, even today. We shame the too-much woman for her bigness, for her wanting, for her passionate nature. And still, she thrives. In my own world and before my very eyes, I am witnessing the reclamation and rising up of the too-much woman. That too-much woman is also known to some as wild woman or the divine feminine. In any case, she is me, she is you, and she is loving that she's finally finally getting some airtime. If you've ever been called too much or overly emotional or bitchy or stuck up, you are likely a too much woman. And if you are, I implore you to embrace all that you are, all of your depth, all of your vastness, to not hold yourself in and to never abandon yourself, your bigness and your radiance. Forget everything you've heard, your too-muchness is a gift. Oh yes, one that can heal, incite, liberate, and cut straight to the heart of things. Do not be afraid of this gift, and let no one shy you away from it. Your too-muchness is magic, is medicine. It can change the world. So please, too-much woman, ask, seek, desire, expand, move, feel, B Make your waves. Fan your flames. Give us chills. Please, rise. We need you. That is The Too Much Woman by Evian Whitney.
0: If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, head to reboot.io slash podcasts to explore past and present seasons of our podcast conversations. To help more people find and enjoy the Reboot podcast, consider leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find our step-by-step guide for leaving reviews in the show notes of each episode. And don't forget to join our mailing list at reboot.io slash sign up, so you'll never miss an episode. Thank you for listening.
1: mean to build organizations of belonging? How can you build an organization safe enough for the whole human to show up at work? In Reboot's newest email course, we discover the hidden power and privilege that can pervade an organization and consider what is needed beyond the HR trends and into matters of the heart to create and sustain real places of belonging for all employees. Compiled and created by the Reboot team of coaches and facilitators, this course is a conversation around the question, How can you contribute to creating an inclusive culture of belonging? The course will unfold via a series of six emails full of content, one email per day over six days. And we hope by the end of the course, you have a sense on how you can relate to belonging to yourself, how you create belonging in your communities, work, home, and life. To learn more and to sign up for free, head to reboot.io slash inclusivity.